Luke chapter 7. And after you've found uh, Luke, if you would hold your place there and go to 1 Kings 17. Okay, let's read verses 11 to 17 here in Luke 7. Jesus continues his ministry in Galilee. It says in verse 11, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come into your word to study, to to listen, as you speak to us, I pray that you would give to us all the help and all the power of your Holy Spirit so that we would have those spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to hear truly and to truly see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit for the preaching of your word. And I pray, Father, that your people would be built up and encouraged today that whatever anxieties or fears they are struggling against, I pray, Father, that against Christ, those things would seem so small and that we would all realize that Christ has the compassion and all the capability to use those things in our lives for our good, even if he wills to make them disappear completely. And I pray, Father, that uh, through this message, as you speak, I pray, Father, that we would have a greater faith and hope in you. Pray that you would be honored and glorified by our response to your word. So again, give to us your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The great question of all of history is, who is the person that God has promised? Who is the one who will save us? After the fall of mankind into sin, the rebellion against God, God immediately in his mercy promised that there would come from the descendants of Adam and Eve one who would save and crush the head of the serpent, the great deceiver. The first several chapters of Luke that we are following here uh, lead us on a tour of Jesus' ministry in the north of Israel in Galilee. And they really uh, are written to give us certainty in answering the, the great question of history. Who is the one that God has promised? In fact, in this very chapter, if you look down at verse 19 in Luke 7, John the Baptist, the prophet who is the forerunner of the Messiah, says to Jesus, he sends his own disciples to Jesus, asking, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Is it Jesus? Who is the one that God has promised? And is is it Jesus? Is he the promised Savior? So these chapters were written to give us certainty, as we saw, you remember, in the first few verses of chapter 1, Luke laid out his purpose for writing. These chapters were written to give us certainty in answering this question. Jesus is the one we know with all certainty of our hearts. He is the one that God has promised to save us. Now Luke 7 is interesting because it gives us a particular answer to that whole line of questioning that I think if we didn't pay careful attention would be easy for us to miss. But that's what we do at All's Chapel. We pay careful attention, right? You paying attention right now? We pay careful attention to what the Word of God says. And so Luke gives us a particular answer to this questioning by placing Jesus in the line of prophets. And for the astonishing authority of his word, this chapter shows us that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of all that the prophets were and the fulfillment of all that the prophets said. All along throughout history, Jesus has been the divine goal. That's why Paul said, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All of the the types and shadows of the past, promises and prophecies, terminate on Christ. He is the fulfillment. Now, how does this help you? How does this help you right here today with what you're going through? If Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, then this addresses every struggle of fear and uncertainty that you have. If your faith is in this Jesus so that you are his and he is yours, then all the compassion of heaven is on you. And you have nothing left to fear. Because as we're going to see as we study this passage in Luke 7 together, you you more than meet him by way of divine appointment on the path of suffering like the widow of Nain. You have more than that. You have him with you. Always you are in him and he is in you. So what we're doing again today, as we do, I think, I hope this happens, every Sunday when we get into the word, we're seeing who we have again in Christ and what we have in him. Would you would you go to Luke 4 quickly? When when Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee, you remember in chapter 4, he was in his hometown of Nazareth teaching the people in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, that was his custom, he was going to be there with the people of God. And he got up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and he unrolled the scroll and found Isaiah 61. And these are the words that he read beginning in verse 18 of chapter 4. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Bible says that the people wondered at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said to one another, I thought this was Joseph's son. Isn't this the son of the local carpenter? And while they were confounded trying to figure out Jesus' identity, he pressed on and actually promised that they would reject him because they refused to believe that he was anything more than the local carpenter's son. And he says in beginning in verse 24, Truly, I say to you, and by the way, what he's doing here, as he prophesies their rejection, he is putting himself in the line of the prophet Elijah. And he is comparing himself to that great prophet of the past. He says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of those widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus told his fellow Nazarenes that they would reject him like Israel had rejected Elijah because they refused to believe that he was anything more than the local carpenter's son. Now, speaking of Elijah and of prophets, what is a prophet? A prophet is God's mouthpiece. A prophet is God's spokesman, right? The prophet who is sent by God says, let's see if get some participation here this morning. What is the, the common refrain, introductory word that the prophet says before he gives his message? Thus says the Lord. Exactly. Man, that's good. He, he invokes the name of God, and when he speaks then, his word carries the weight of divine authority. So I want you to look back now at 1 Kings 17, verse 14. And this is the incident in Elijah's life that Jesus was talking about in Luke 4. Remember he said Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel, but only to that one in Zarephath and land the Sidon. Okay, so 1 Kings 17 verse 14, Elijah says to the widow of Zarephath, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So Jesus in Luke 4 puts himself in the line of the prophets. But it's fascinating when you look at the words of Christ throughout his ministry. He does not talk. He's in their line. He's in the line of the prophets, but he doesn't speak like they speak. He doesn't invoke the name of God. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. But over and over again, He says, I say to you. And it's obviously very, very different. His own word 
carries divine authority. And by his word, as we've been seeing in our months in Luke, by his word he works wonders. And that's why the people are crying out all the time, who is this man? If he was always saying, thus says the Lord, and delivering the word of teaching or miracle working, they wouldn't be saying, who is this guy? They wouldn't be saying, what word is this? But they were saying those things because nobody in all of history has ever talked like Jesus talks. Demons, diseases, and even damnation itself is sent packing at the word of Christ. And now, in this, this stunning episode, by the way, keep your place in 1 Kings 17. In this stunning episode before us, which has incredible parallels to the Elijah story, death itself comes to the head of the line of those who oppose Christ. And like every other darkness that's in the ranks opposing him, death is forced into retreat because nothing resists the word of Christ. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, nothing visible or invisible resists the authority of Christ's word. Now back to 1 Kings 17. Because I want you to see how these two events parallel one another. 900 years earlier, the prophet Elijah stayed with this Gentile widow and her only son during a brutal time of famine. And just as Elijah promised in God's name, they were sustained as long as that famine lasted. But then one day, this widow woman's son dies. And in her grief, she wails and screams at Elijah. But the Bible says that Elijah takes up the dead child in his arms and he goes into his upper chamber where his bed was and he laid the child on his own bed. And this is what the text says in verse 21 of verse seven of chapter 17. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See Your son lives. And I I wanted you to note um, those words in the sentence before. He delivered him to his mother. Just keep that in mind. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What are you afraid of these days? Are you afraid of the when and the where and the how of when, you know, the the next terrorist strike comes to American soil? Does that at all keep you awake at night? Perhaps you fear that the doctor's treatment won't be successful. Maybe you're not worried so much about you, but you have these fears of dying and leaving loved ones behind to fend for themselves? 
Perhaps you're realizing these days that you are never going to be enough. You just can't do enough to keep people happy. You're worried that you'll never be enough for the people that you want to please. Or maybe it's just some unknown darkness out there somewhere that you know sooner or later you're going to have to encounter. What are you afraid of these days? Are we supposed to come to church and put those things aside for an hour or two and put on a smile and be happy? Well, the short answer is nope. We're not supposed to put those things aside. We're supposed to bring them out into the open to be exposed under the shining light of God's Word. And we are to bring to bear on all the things that we fear, on all the things that we are anxious about, we are to bring to bear the truth of God's Word on those things. 2,000 years ago, there was a widow woman stumbling through the village gate at Nain in Galilee. Her heart and her body are racked with grief. Some time ago, she had lost her husband. And in the last 24 hours, her greatest fears were realized when she lost her only son. Now, how will she ever go on? She has lost all that she has loved and all that who, all who loved her. How is she going to get on alone? Because you have to think about that time and day when there's no social security or survivor benefits or any kind of government assistance at all. How is she going to get on alone when even in her own village, whole families are barely getting by? And so at the head of this procession, blinded by tears, she stumbles through the village gate. Death has come and is ever before her. Now I want you to picture yourself in the other procession that Luke describes, the opposite procession. Picture yourself in it, okay? You follow Jesus wherever he goes on the edge of your seat. You can't wait every single day for Jesus just to open his mouth because you know when he opens his mouth, awesomeness is going to come out. So on this day, You are marching along in this procession hot on the heels of Christ and you crest one of the many hills in southern Galilee and you look down below at the bottom of this hill and you see the village of Nain. And your imagination just fills with the possible wonders that Jesus might accomplish there. This whole procession following Christ is just filled with excited chatter. People talking about what what is he going to say next? What is he going to do? You know, who is about to have their life changed? What's he going to teach us? You, You can't wait for that. All of this excited chatter going on. But as you near the town, people begin to pat each other on the arm. And and shush each other. And parents begin to to shush their children. Until everything is awkwardly silent and the only sound in the space is the wail of this grieving mother at the entrance to the town these two processions intersect one procession has been marching with purpose and with joy like they will never see darkness in this life again at the head of the other procession is a woman who feels seriously like 
her darkness will never lift again. And quickly you see the cause of her pain. The grain corpse of this young man being carried aloft, headed toward the tombs. So whatever wind of faith has been in your sails throughout this march on this glorious day, all of a sudden, that is gone. The wind of faith filling your sails dissipates, and you just think, if only. I mean, if ever a scene said, if only, this was it. If only Jesus had been here the day before. The day before. But I want you to notice this word that Luke uses in verse 12. Notice this word. Sometimes you have to read through the narrative, picking out the words that don't have to be there for the telling of the story. But Luke uses this word, behold. Jesus is on the march into Nain. And death is on the march out. Its latest victim, the widow's only son, in tow. Behold. In other words, Luke is setting us up. He is saying to us as witnesses to Jesus, take your place on the side of the road. There is about to be a showdown. Jesus and death. Now Jesus many times has prevented death. He has kept death at bay by his word, healing the fever and healing the case of leprosy. He kept death at bay. He's prevented death. But can he reverse death? That's the question. He's prevented it. Can he, by his word, reverse death when death has already been there and done its work and conquered its latest victim? Does he have the capability? Now, as witnesses gathering on the sidelines to watch this showdown, the first thing that a witness must do in these works of Jesus is listen. The first thing the witnesses must do is listen and then watch what wonders will be worked. It says in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. There is a very hopeful note here. Again, uh, Luke's word choice is important to notice. This is the first time in verse 13 that Luke, as the narrator telling these stories, these events, has called Jesus Lord. He, he's, you, you know, we've seen the word, the title, Lord, on the lips of the angels who say, um, Born to you in the city of David as a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We've heard Peter say, uh, Lord, uh, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. And we've heard the word Lord on the voice, on the lips of the, the leper who said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But this is the first time that Luke, as the narrator, has said, has used this title for Jesus. And when the Lord saw her, and the question is, Lord of what? What is he the Lord of? What falls under the authority of Christ's lordship? And of all that does fall under his authority, is death included? Is death included? Does he have the capability to reverse death after it's conquered its latest victim? He certainly has the compassion. 
He has the compassion. He is just filled with compassion for this woman's loss and her sorrow and her fear. And I want to park there for a moment on Christ's compassion. You know, I I tell you all the time that we are not a health and wealth gospel preaching, teaching, believing church. We're not. And I would rather die than get up here and preach the false gospel that promises temporary health and temporary wealth in the name of the Lord. But I don't want you to ever believe that the Lord does not care about your temporary fears and temporary struggles. He remembers our frame, that we are dust. He knows your great weaknesses and your great fears, and he pities them. He has compassion for you because of them, even when in the grand scheme of things they might look small. He pities them. This is our God. The Gospels use this particular word for compassion 12 times. For, and it's, this compassion comes out of Jesus for, for every kind of grief that there is. All kinds of misery move the Lord to pity his people. He cares deeply for every single need that you have. No matter if that great need is spiritual or physical. Why is that? Well, he created all things. He created the visible and the invisible. He created the physical and he created the spiritual. And because he created all things, he's going to save all things. In the end, he will raise us up glorified soul and body, spiritual and physical. And because he created all things and saves all things, he pities every kind of need. Your first need, which is spiritual, profoundly spiritual, and all the physical symptoms of that spiritual need. He pities us, his people. What kind of Lord is this who is moved with compassion? The small L lords of this world are self-concerned. The small G gods that we have conjured up with our imaginations They're these immovable taskmasters, you know, standing over their people, brandishing a whip to keep us in line. Those small G gods that we have imagined put people to grief without any pity whatsoever. But our God, though he caused grief, this is from Lamentations, though our God caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He grieves, but not from his heart. Meaning, that's not his great first desire to put people to grieve, to, to grief. So, I think the Bible is so clear that behind every affliction stands our sovereign God. If there is affliction, quoting someone from the past, If there is affliction, it is God who sends it. But this word tells us that while death is on the march, it marches on a leash that is firm in the hand of our God who is full of compassion for his people.
And so Jesus says to this bereaved mama, do not weep. Did anybody ever say, don't cry with so much tenderness as Jesus does to this grieving mother? Now in verses 14 and 15, Luke does what he does. He, he puts the narrative into slow motion. And this is what he says. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And I wonder how long it took for people to pick their jaws up off the ground. And then someone got their voice back and was like, yeah! And there was just shouts and cheers and backslaps all around. And I imagine, you know, if this widow, she, if she knew the scripture, this is what she could have said. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. She could have said. She could have sung. Psalm 38 to 12. Immediately, Luke says, the crowds are thinking in terms of Elijah. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And Luke also wants us to think in terms of Elijah. And you might have to take my word for it here, but of course you, you know that the language that Luke crafts here at the leading of the Spirit is very deliberate. His word choice here is very deliberate because, you see, Jesus, the, the Bible that he used, the Old Testament, New Testament, of course, not written, was, was written in Hebrew, and it had been translated into Greek, and it was called the Septuagint. And that's the Bible that they used in that time. And it's interesting because in that Bible, it uses the exact same words for what Elijah did as Luke uses here to say what Jesus did. Remember what I told you to pay attention to in 1 Kings 17? He delivered him to his mother. Same words here. And he gave him to his mother. Exact same wording. Because Luke wants us to think back to that incident. There was nothing else like it in all of history. There was that widow who had an only son. And Elijah the prophet raised him up invoking the name of the Lord. And it says, and he gave him to his mother. This is not really important to the story that he gave him to his mother. Do we need to know that? Not really, except Luke wants us to see the parallel between these two events of which, you know, nothing else can compare in all of history. It says he gave him to his mother. Now, of course, we are to think beyond Elijah 
Because you remember what Elijah did to raise up this young child. He took the child up to his bed. He laid him down. He laid himself over the child three times, praying and invoking the name of God. And the child had his life returned to him. You see, the authority that the prophets bore was not their own, but belonged to the one whose name they invoked. But Jesus doesn't touch the widow's son. Doesn't touch him. He doesn't follow a formula or step-by-step method like Elijah did to heal this one. He doesn't even invoke the name of another. He says instead, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. And that, that's startling, right? It is startling. And Luke means for it to be very startling. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Of course, verse 17, the report of this spreads like wildfire through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus has prevented death, prevented death already on numerous occasions by his word. Now by his word, he reverses it. At Nain, death has met its master. People look at the Bible, oftentimes, you know, liberals and skeptics who want to cast doubt on it and and cast doubt on the identity of Jesus and what we as Christians believe about him. And they say, okay, show me. Where does Jesus ever claim to be God? Where did he just come right out and say it? I am God. Now, I would give some pushback there and say, hey, there are a few places that are undeniably clear where there is a claim a verbal claim to deity. But don't you see? Many people have said, I am God. Many people have made that claim, and everybody who's made it has made it falsely. But no one has ever talked like Jesus talked. No one. No one has ever spoken like this man. Because prophets whenever they wanted to accomplish something that was beyond their capability, they said, thus says the Lord. Jesus simply says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. That in itself, that Jesus doesn't invoke the name of God, that speaks volumes about his identity. I want you to get this. I want to... I want you to have this conviction in your heart and I want the theology to turn into singing. See, the God of the Bible, this is what he says. In Isaiah 55, which I read earlier, the God of the Bible claims great power and authority by his word. He says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. And do you see? It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. Jesus' word never returns to him empty, but it accomplishes all that he purposes and succeeds in the thing for which he sends it. So what does that mean? 
That means nothing less than the God of the Bible who claims Isaiah 55 authority and Jesus of Nazareth are one. Or, you can put it like this. If Elijah said, thus says the Lord, and the widow and her son stay alive, and Jesus says, I say to you, young man, arise, and the widow's son lives again, then tell me, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is no one less than the Lord whose name Elijah invoked. That's what Luke is saying. That's what he wants us to realize. He puts Jesus in the line of prophets and shows that he is the prophet, the ultimate, the fulfillment of all that the prophets were and the fulfillment of all that they ever promised. This is who Jesus is. Now, someone might say, you know, this is all well and good and Jesus really amazing about Jesus. But I'm not the widow in Nain, you know. It would be great if every time I had this massive problem, Jesus would just show up and just erase the whole thing. That would be great. But I don't have that. You're right. You have better than that. And Jesus wants you to believe it. Because with all the surety of his word that raises the dead, Jesus also says to you, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the Holy Spirit declares, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are better off than the grieving mother who meets Jesus on her way to bury her son. Because the God who raises the dead by his spirit dwells within us. We have him with us and always within us. And if that last enemy, the great enemy of death, is vanquished by the word of God, tell me, what do we have left to fear? What do we have left to fear? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have had to meditate upon Jesus and the authority of his word, on his lordship, to not only prevent death, but actually to reverse it, to put death to death. Father, I pray that realizing that we have it better than this widow woman whose son was raised up, I pray, Father, that our fears would go The problems won't necessarily. You can, you may reverse them, but we don't know what exactly you're going to do for us, how you will help in any situation. But I pray, Father, that we would have such a conviction of the authority of your word and such a reassurance in our hearts of you with us and in us 
that the fears of those hardships and struggles would go, would go, and we would hope and trust in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name I pray and for his sake. Amen.